Good morning. So we are continuing in the book of Timothy. Today we have made it all the way to chapter 6. So I'm going to be reading from the book. Oh, 1 Timothy. Sorry, I should specify. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading from verse 1 down through verse 10. So hear the word of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up and understands nothing. He has, an uncra- he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about word, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Some people say you can tell a man by his shoes. I'm not sure where the saying originated. A version of it can be found, of course, in the movie Forrest Gump, and that's the film that introduced it to me. Well, I have to confess I'm a little bit skeptical as to what you can really know about a person based on footwear alone. Now, don't get me wrong. You can probably make some educated guesses. So, for example, if you see someone wearing Crocs with socks, (laughs) you might be justified, you might be, in thinking that you're looking at a computer scientist on his day off. But your conclusion is going to be a little bit doubtful. It's going to be questionable. By contrast, in the final chapter of this first epistle Paul has written to Timothy, he gives us a much surer test with respect to false teachers. According to Paul, there are some things you can know and know conclusively about anyone who disagrees with the sound teaching of Jesus Christ that accords with godliness. To begin with, you can know such a person is puffed up, and understands nothing. Clearly, the apostle is not interested in pulling any punches right here. He's using some really heavy language. And I think we can understand where he's coming from because to come in the midst 
of God's people, His church, and intentionally submarine, well, whether it's intentional or not, but to submarine the teachings of God's own Son for personal profit, that is very presumptuous and foolish. So we should not be surprised if Paul characterizes such people as being both arrogant and ignorant. But the defects don't end there. When ignorance and arrogance get together, they have some really ugly children. One of which is an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. Now, anyone who takes Christianity seriously is going to discover that Christians, even the most faithful and devout Christians, here comes a shocking fact, sometimes they disagree. <laughs> that, yeah, I hope I set that up enough for you. Sometimes disagreements concern what you might call the finer points of theology. And you can talk to Fred Henderson about those, because he would love to have a discussion with you about the finer points of theology. Sometimes they concern more weighty matters. But if you take your Christianity seriously, you're probably not going to be able to avoid all conflict and disputes altogether. So we have to learn the very delicate art of how to disagree lovingly with one another, with understanding, without compromising what we sincerely believe to be true. Now, this is not as easy as it sounds. And the false teacher makes no serious attempt to do it because controversy is what he craves. That's what he wants. That's what he lusts after, is the fight. This might appear to be someone who is concerned about the truth, but truth is not his aim. His aim is just to win. His aim is to put someone else in the wrong. Now, I don't think you have to be a false teacher to sympathize with this attitude. Because generally speaking, we are not very good at what I'll call civil argumentation, which is unfortunate because I really do think there is a place, as I've implied, for civil discussion within the church. But heated quarrels, those need to be in a different category. Heated quarrels do not reveal the truth. They conceal the truth. You may have noticed the type of person Paul is describing here is not exactly, does not exactly have an attractive personality. Who is going to want to have anything to do with someone like this? Who wants to be friends with, go to church with, be married to, Someone who is stupid, conceited, and always wants to fight. You might think, okay, here's the perfect recipe for a lonely life. And yet, surprisingly enough, Paul says these teachers have found an audience here in this church, which is probably in Ephesus. And the words he uses to describe the audience are not much more flattering than the words he uses to describe their would-be teachers. He says... They are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. There is another lethal combination for you. We need to remember that sound doctrine involves two things. It involves 
right belief and it involves right behavior and we need to care about both. That's what it means to love God with all of our heart and all of our mind. Now, we might not always know what the truth is in a given situation, and that's okay. We might not always know the right course of action in a given situation, and that's okay. But it's not okay not to care about it. These are things, even if we don't know the answers, we need to care about what the truth is, and we need to care about what right behavior is. Why? Because otherwise, you will be defenseless against false teaching. You will have no defense there's nothing you can do about it. You will be taken advantage of at some point if these are things you don't care about. Whether it's by a human false teacher or whether it's by our adversary, the devil. These poor souls at Ephesus do not have a chance. They are ripe to be exploited. And that's exactly what happened. The false teachers come in. They sow their deceptions into the misguided hearts of these people. And because they don't care about what's true and they don't care about what's right, what you get is a big harvest of corruption. Envy. Slander. Dissensions. Evil suspicions. The fruit of the poisonous vine planted by the ministers of falsity and sampled all too often even by people who are church-going. And what you get is a situation that starts to look a lot more like hell than it does heaven. To echo what Pastor Bill said last week, at some point you really start feeling sorry for Timothy coming into this situation because he does have his work cut out for him. He just has a big mess on his hands. And at the beginning of chapter 6, we're actually given an example of the kind of dysfunction that can arise out of this toxic situation. As in so many cases, the mistake in question is not the result of an out-and-out lie, which is rarely successful, but from the kind of lie that lives like a parasite on one facet of the truth. Beware of what I am referring to because this type of heresy, which is just another word for false teaching, is very common. Many heresies are not the result of people trying to add things to the truth. Many of them are people isolating a single truth and then ignoring all the other truths that are needed to balance our beliefs. In this case, we have some Christian slaves who latched on to a very significant and beautiful element of the Lord's Gospel, but who, in some respects, also forgot the heart of that Gospel they received. What they understood rightly is their elevated status as Christians. An elevation that was probably considered scandalous in the ancient world. Now, I freely confess, I don't know much about ancient Roman society. I'm not an expert. But I imagine this idea that slaves were of equal value and equal worth with their masters is something that a pagan would have just completely rejected. Yet, that's precisely the status change these slaves, these Christian slaves, now enjoy. They can no longer 
in a Christian context, be put into that category of inferior human being. The Lord had come, and the Lord had did, the Lord did away with all of that forever. That had been changed. This is a fact, by the way, that critics of the New Testament, I feel like, often ignore, because when they come to 1 Timothy, of course, what they're looking for is any chance they can get to malign the New Testament and people who believe in the New Testament. So, what they focus on is the fact that Paul did not explicitly prohibit Christians from owning slaves. Of course, slavery question is a very important one, and many Christian apologists have dedicated time to demonstrating that God had morally sufficient reasons for allowing the institution of slavery to last as long as it did. And I would also insist that if you read the Bible carefully and sympathetically, you're not going to walk away with the impression that the Lord and His apostles were pro-slavery. We must remember that from the beginning, the first two chapters of the Bible are very unique. The era described in the first two chapters of the Bible prior to the fall give us God's ideal. We need to come back to those and remember what God said. He said that He created mankind in His own image, male and female, He created them. And they had at creation, all men, all women had equal value, equal worth, and equal dignity. Had mankind not rebelled against its creator, the, slavery of, uh, the institution of slavery would never have existed. That was not God's plan. That was not His design. That was the result of human corruption, rebelliousness, and sin. So if we think about the matter logically, which is helpful to do from time to time, what follows from the fact that Paul did not explicitly forbid slavery? Let's just think about it. What logically follows? Does it follow that God didn't create the universe? No. Does it follow that Jesus is not the Word of God made flesh? No. Does it follow that He wasn't crucified, buried, and resurrected? No. Does anything follow from it? Yes. It follows that Paul didn't explicitly forbid slavery. So this is supposed to debunk Christianity. It's a very, very weak argument. We don't need to be threatened by it. But I digress. To come back now to the issue at hand, these slaves were Christian owners... Knowing their masters were their brothers in Christ, decided to use this fact as excuse to misbehave and be disrespectful. And this would have made an impression on their pagan neighbors. They would have seen what these slaves were doing and they would have thought, you know what? The gospel just makes people worse. And so the word of God can be blasphemed sometimes on account of our bad behavior. And I know that that is something that we all deal with to a certain extent. We've all made those mistakes. You don't need to be a theological genius, though, to see where the slaves went wrong. Those who had Christian masters, as the spiritual brothers, forgot that we are supposed to love our brothers. That's a big, important facet of the gospel. Even those who have a differing degree of authority. 
So this morning we prayed for Lisa Waddell. Lisa Waddell is actually my boss at ICS. And I would say we are of equal value and equal worth. I don't know what she would say. She probably would agree. I'm just teasing. <laughs> but she's my sister in Christ. So we work at a Christian school. Lisa is my sister in Christ. And so on those grounds we are equal. But we do not have equal authority. Lisa has more authority than I do. And it's just silly for me to think that I am submitting to God's authority if I'm not also submitting to the authorities He has placed over me in my life. I know a lot of Americans hate the idea of authority. But trust me, it's a whole lot better than anarchy. And pray you never find out how bad anarchy is. It, it's, it's bad. We don't want that. Degrees of authority are not wrong. Abuse of authority is wrong. We should try to remove it when we can. But... Having degrees of authority in society is not a bad plan. This picture of the master and the slave, though, we can look at it in a broader and deeper kind of way. Because did not the Apostle Paul sometimes refer to himself as the slave of Jesus Christ? So would it not also be true of us that this is a picture in some sense of our relationship to the Lord? He is the master. We are the servant. And that begs the question, how am I treating my master? Am I honoring my master? Or am I being disrespectful on the grounds that he loves me unconditionally? Am I using that as an excuse to embrace ungodliness and to embrace sinfulness in my life. If I haven't made this clear, if Paul hasn't made this clear by now, we should know the sound teaching of Jesus, when it is preached faithfully, never, ever, ever produces ungodliness. Never. That is not the fruit of faithful teaching. That is the fruit of misunderstanding. Now, I... Believe, of course, that God does love us unconditionally. I fully affirm this doctrine of the all-lovingness of God because it's so important, especially for people that are taking, seeking His kingdom first seriously. When you are on that road, if your experience is anything like mine, you meet with failure. You meet with disappointment. You meet with discouragement. You meet with backsliding. And so it's so important that we remember and trust that even when I mess up, God does not love me any less. When I succeed, God does not love me anymore. The intensity of God's love for me, His love for you, never, ever, ever changes. It is the same, always. But when people logically conclude, therefore it doesn't matter how I behave, I say, what? Look, just because God loves us doesn't mean we're loving Him back. And loving God back is biggie. It's a first and greatest commandment biggie. Now, none of, us got, none of us love God perfectly. I'm no exception. Our love for God is not what it should be, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. Read what, what we love, what is in our heart. That, that matters, what we love. Read 1 John 2.15. If any man love the world, 
The love of the Father is not in Him. So I need to know what animates my heart. I need to know this. What am I drawn to? Is it money? Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, if Dave Ramsey were here, he would want to make sure that I add that it's not money that's the root of all evil, it's the love of money. <laughs> but when you have money, there is that temptation to start loving it. Money's not the only thing that digs into hearts. What about things? I just moved this last year. And like many Americans, I've got lots and lots of stuff. I have got, we've got boxes of stuff at the house that still have not been unpacked. We just took our Christmas decorations down yesterday. <laughs> we, we've got loads of stuff. Guess how much of that we're taking with us out of this world? We're taking none of it. We're taking none of it with us when we leave this world. What about entertainment? What about food and drink? On any given day, on any given week, what do I long for the most? What is my heart gravitating towards? Are they the things that pertain to the kingdom of God? Or are they the things that pertain to the kingdom of the world? So many people live their whole lives chasing the rainbow's end. And all they get, their full reward, is discontentment. And it can make a person weary. It can make a person discouraged. But if you want to go after something that's truly valuable and obtainable, Paul has a suggestion for you this morning. This is what he suggests. You want to aim for something. Godliness. Godliness with contentment. Paul says, you aim for that, that is great gain. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I won't want the world, and I won't want the things of the world, because I will have something infinitely better. You see, that's what Jesus meant when He said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure that someone hid in the field. And he came by the field and he sees the treasure and then he goes out and he sells everything that he has and he buys that field. Now, if you don't know what the treasure is worth, that looks crazy. If you don't know what it's worth. But if you know what the treasure is worth, it's not a sacrifice at all. It's no sacrifice. You know what you're getting, but so many people don't know what the treasure's worth. What is that treasure? That treasure is knowing the Lord. It's not knowing about Him. It's not having facts about Him. It is being connected with Him in a personal relationship. And if you've got food and clothing and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the richest person in the universe. Let's pray. Holy Father in Heaven, we thank You that we have the opportunity to gather in a house of prayer, and a house of worship. We thank You for Your Word. And we pray that You would root out of our hearts and minds any love we have for this world, and that You would replace that love 
with your grace and your mercy and your kingdom so that this people in this room here today will live their lives for the glory of your name and the building of your kingdom for all the world to see that your healing would come upon us and upon the city and upon this nation and to the ends of the earth. In your righteous name we pray. Amen.